0: But I want to take you back to Friday. I was playing football on Friday. Um, Some of you may know I'm a goalkeeper, and I one of those moments where the ball came through to me. I had to go out the box to get it and uh, hold up my hands and be honest. I made an absolute hash of trying to clear it. The ball shot off to one of the opposition, and I ended up having to sort of scramble it back from them and pull off a save. I don't want to stick from my own team for having done this. What should have been easy? What should have been straightforward? and i just made really quite a meal of it i picked up the ball threw it out to one of the guys on my team and one of the guys who probably took the most pride in taking the mick out of me made made a clear point of it and he looked exactly like this cartoon character he didn't just make a hash of it he didn't even connect with the ball He missed it completely and it, it rolled out for throwing for them and a lot of people turned around and said oh There's a good bit of um, sort of divine retribution in that there, Mike, isn't there? He ended up, um, for what he'd been taking the mick out of me for doing it the same, but to a far, far worse extent. And I just want you to keep that idea sort of in your minds um, as we think through what we've just been looking at. But to really understand what we're doing, we need to go back to where this is inside the book of Micah and inside the whole Bible. So we're at a point where God's people had been given the country Israel, or roughly the country as we know it. As Israel, they were um, known as the Israelites. The country had then split into two, much as if it was the UK, uh, Scotland splitting off from England. So they'd split into two, and God's people, or the the, the people who were then still known as God's people, were in the southern bit called Judah. Which I hate to say, it would mean that God was staying in England and not in Scotland. So we'll just gloss over the rest of that analogy and keep on going. But this is the people to whom Michael was speaking. The people who said, or felt, or thought that they were still God's people once the country had split in two. And we need to remember to start off with that this was the land that they'd been given. And this is the land that God had given them. Okay, we'll see, we'll see if the screen ever catches up with where I am. This is the land that they'd been given, and, and it's quite significant that this is the land that they'd been given. So remember that bit in your minds. And the other people there would have known, should have known, much like we do, things like the Ten Commandments. They would have known God's character. So we see in the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is uh, do not covet and it gives us a list of things to not cover. But these people, clearly we see in what we've just read, were coveting their neighbor's land. They were coveting their neighbor's house. They were all wanting everything that their neighbor had. We can see in the Old Testament that God thinks that, or tells us that social justice is very important. And yet these people were showing absolutely none of that. Inside the first five verses that we read, there were the references to taking land, to scheming—not just taking land, but to scheming. How can I get this? How can I get this person's inheritance? How can I get this person's house? And if you look down again, uh, look at her head slightly. Verses eight and nine. Verses eight and nine says, "Say, lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes." you take away my blessing from their children forever. So they don't even just stop with taking houses with taking land they go on to take well, the very shirt off their back these people who are supposed to be God's people who know or knew God's character who knew God who knew what God demanded of them were really doing the exact opposite so there you can see the process and again And again, so God removed their land. These proud people, it says that God humbled them. He brought them low. Normally, the the people who are proud wouldn't be getting ridiculed. But it does say God is going to bring a disaster on them from which they cannot escape. They will be brought low. They will be ridiculed in the street. They will lose the land. And if we look at verse 5, when we think of it in this order... Verse 5 is actually a very powerful but quite frightening verse. It says in verse 5, therefore you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Now dividing the land by lot was how they'd been given those pieces of land that they had as part of God's country back at the start. So that would be a real um, sort of spark in their heads seeing God who had been there for them, who had been giving them his presence, withdrawing that, they no longer have that person to fight for them. Everything that they were proud of, everything that they had been given, they had not then passed on to other people. They were getting that taken away from them. So that's the first five verses. Can you read now from verse six through to the end of the chapter? And there are a second set of questions that go with that. So verse six through to the end of the chapter, maybe get somebody in your group to read it out. And go on and uh, look at the questions that go with that ok see so if we can wrap up the conversations there then I've done it ok so this second half of the chapter then starts now to look at what the people's reaction is when they're told this ok if we look at what they're actually saying, they get their own prophets together to say, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that. Surely, surely, surely that won't happen. We can almost imagine them saying, well, but is this not a God who's uh, slow to anger and in love? Surely he won't do that. Or perhaps they're saying, this is, this is, I don't like to hear that bit. We'll skip out that bit. Sort of reminding me, um, in a, I suppose it's a, a weekish analogy, of the um, Vicar of Diddley. Okay, I don't know if you remember, or if you've ever seen the, the comedy, The Vicar of Diddley, but I could almost imagine her being told by her um, uh, PCC, oh no, let's leave the nasty bits of the Bible out. Let's not do that. If we don't get that, uh, if, if we can skip the nasty bits, then we'll have more people come along to church or the few who come will actually stay. And I can find a lot of reasons, I'm sure, to just to miss out the bits that are uncomfortable reading, to sort of gloss over them. But actually, I'd even think, I'd even say, it goes a step further than that. When they come out with that sentence, um, sort of, surely that won't happen, sounds very similar to how the serpent spoke to Adam and Eve. Well, surely God didn't say that. Let's... No, surely you, you won't die, did he say? A similar sort of thing. Let's, let's brush away the last bits. Let's convince ourselves this isn't going to happen. Let's convince ourselves that this isn't really as, as awkward or as uncomfortable as it seems. But when we think forward into the New Testament, it actually lines up um, very clearly, but again very uncomfortably, with verse 11. Look down at the second half of verse 11. And it says, if you found a prophet who, said, uh, who prophesied to you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just a prophet for these people. Wouldn't it be nice to have a prophet who told you what you wanted to hear? As Jesus said, the people will gather round them, a group of people who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. We like to hear nice things. We like to hear that we're going to become rich, that we're going to become powerful, and we don't like being told when things are going wrong. We don't like to hear that. It's uncomfortable. And those people were gathering around themselves prophets to say the same thing. They didn't like to hear this bit. But God puts in the middle of this, in verse 7, his own take on his own words. He puts in there the truth. Look at the second half of verse 7. He says, Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright, He doesn't say, aren't they nice things to hear? He doesn't say, oh yes, that's going to be comfortable. God's word is described later in the Bible as being as sharp as a double-edged sword. As sharp as a double-edged sword isn't particularly nice or comfortable, but it is important. It is stuff that we need to hear. So God's saying, well, okay, my words aren't comfortable, they aren't nice, they aren't the kind of things you want to hear, but if you're upright, if you were listen to what I say, if you will be teachable, then actually it's really, really important to listen. Now I think uh, at first glance we can look at the people back then, sort of two and a half thousand years ago and say, weren't they awful? It says in in verse 8 they become enemies of God. Imagine doing that. Imagine being that nasty. Taking people's land from them. Scheming. Scheming to, to sort of Tread down the people who are already down downtrodden. But we have to be very, very wary of looking at people in the Bible and saying, well, at least they're not as bad as them. Or look at them. Look how bad they are. If you uh, did the um, Bible Toolkit seminar during the summer, then you might remember uh, the mirror tool. When we look at the Bible, God's telling us something about ourselves. And we need to be very careful that we don't miss the image that's there of ourselves. That we don't wander away and think, well, I'm not as bad as they are. Look at me, I must be quite good. Because that's exactly the position that they were in. Okay? If we look at verse 8, the people there are described as enemies of God. We need to be sure that we're doing everything not to fall into that trap. Not that we're going to earn God's points. Not that we're doing this to, to... build up enough credits to get into heaven. But doing this as a response to God, to keep our relationship with God correct. Now I said earlier on that God loves social justice, which could be a a sort of uh, an overreaching theme of everything that was going wrong with these people. Not to say that it's the only thing, but it, it could be an overreaching theme. And at first, when we think yes, God loves social justice, I think that's a good thing, but I want us to think, is it actually a good thing or a bad thing that God loves social justice? It's good because it it matches up with everything else that we know about God. When God talks about um, feeding the hungry, being kind to the poor, taking care of the widow, looking out for children, looking out for the weak, and the oppressed, that all matches up. That all seems perfectly to hang together. It seems a good thing. It's nice to have a God who will look after the people who are somewhat more needy. But if God asks us to follow his example and to follow his teaching, I look at that sentence that God loves social justice, or I think about the character of God, and I think actually that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. The reason that makes me uncomfortable is because I don't have to turn around and say, well, if I look at myself in the mirror, do I do that as much as I should be doing? Could I in any way be classed along with the people whom Micah is absolutely slighting in this passage. Could I be clasped with them? Could I be open to the same punishment that God says so clearly that he has lined up for them in this passage? Now, I hope I haven't missed it in my own life, but I don't believe I go around scheming to nick my neighbor's house or to take the lambs from people to take the shirts off their back. But, do I do everything to stop that happening? Do I make sure that what I buy does actually come from people who produce it responsibly, whether it's fair trade or whether it's under any other sort of label? Do I make sure that the people who I'm at work with, and it does even happen amongst adults, the people who are gossiped about, do I make sure I don't gossip about them, I don't join in treading down the people who are already that bit weaker? Do I make sure I stand up for the media? And I think when we took a good, take good long, a good long look at ourselves, using the Bible as a mirror, perhaps this passage is going to become somewhat uncomfortable for us. Again, not so that we are aware of, oh, I've done all these things wrong, so I've got to make them all right to earn God points. But have we started to break our relationship with God? As uh, Elfie was saying last week, are we going into that heartbreaking of God rather than, Thinking of it just as rule breaking, we have to be very clearly aware of our own sin and our broken relationship with God. Because the big picture is the things that we knew at the start, everything that God gave those people, they then didn't pass on fairly, weren't good stewards of it. Are we going to be inside the same trap? Are we going to be accused of doing the same thing? Is our relationship with God broken in this way? God has set an example for us of how we should live and we need to follow it. If I'm going to be specific from this passage, God loves social justice, so we must too. Now reading this passage, it looks, at first glance, very hopeless. I personally became very, very aware Of the ways in which I don't do things correctly. In the ways in which I don't stand up. The ways in which I can become complacent and proud like the people in this passage. The way I can see my own relationship with God being broken because of what I'm doing. But inside there, there is one sentence where there is one word which should spark in our minds the hope that's there. This is not an entirely hopeless passage and it is not an entirely hopeless book. Now there will be a lot more coming next week, where thankfully a lot changes. But for now, look back at verse 3. Let's look very carefully at the wording. This is God speaking to those people, and he says, I am planning a disaster from which you cannot save yourselves. At first reading, and when we follow the rest of it on, we see that they're going to be uh, losing their land that they are going to be ridiculed in the streets they're going to lose everything that they've built up for themselves but where it says from which you cannot save yourselves it doesn't say from which there is absolutely no salvation we should remember that somewhere hidden behind all of this this seemingly hopeless situation and I hope you're already a step ahead of me and see where I'm going we say that well we can't save ourselves from this but we've already spoken of and sung of this morning Christ who can so if we've got to point now if you've got to point now where you're looking at this and seeing your own relationship broken with God much as I am because I know my actions don't stand up to what they should do I can see well I have things I need to change and I need to pray for help in doing that but when that word reminds me when I read on into the next few verses with which Gareth is going to be taking us through next week I'm so, so thankful for Christ, which means that that disaster is not there to overwhelm ourselves. Overwhelm us. We cannot save ourselves individually. Christ can. Let's rejoice in that, and then let's get back to restoring, as much as we can, our part in our relationship with God, knowing that it's Christ who does the rest. I think I want to leave you with that um, the awareness of sin, for that great message of hope that we have. So that's where I'm going to finish. I believe, Emma, am I right, we've got one more song? So if the band wants to come up and we'll finish up, Andy, I'm sure you'll tell us what's coming.